Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who are joining us on our Heritage.org website. Uh, for those in-house, we would ask that courtesy to see that our mobile devices have been silenced before we begin. And, of course, those watching online are welcome to send questions or comments at any time simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. We will then, of course, post the program on the Heritage homepage for everyone's future reference. Leading our discussion is James Roberts. Mr. Roberts is our research fellow for economic freedom and growth in the Center for International Trade and Economics. His primary focus is to edit the rule of law and monetary freedom sections of Heritage's annual Index of Economic Freedom. He also studies economic and political issues in Latin America and Europe, as well as development assistance and nation-building issues. Before joining us here, he served in the State Department for 25 years. He also helped coordinate several major U.S. assistance programs, including efforts to reform Eastern Europe and to reconstruct Iraq. Before entering public service, Mr. Roberts was a financial analyst at the Ford Motor Company. He also served in the U.S. Navy Reserve from 1982 to 93. Please join me in welcoming Jim Roberts. Jim. Thanks very much, John, and welcome. On behalf of my Heritage colleague and co-author, Brett Schaefer, who I know is here somewhere, um, we're delighted that you could join us today for a discussion of ideas to overhaul America's foreign assistance programs. U.S. foreign and security challenges are vastly different now than they were after World War II. The broad goals have been to assist people in crisis, enhance market opportunities for American products and investments, catalyze economic growth in developing country and promote U.S. national security and foreign policy by supporting allies and countering adversaries. These are all worthy goals. But like any policy, uh, uh, the, uh, the need is for an update. Now, we need a periodic update, and we're long past uh, having had one. Reevaluation, reorientation of concepts, elimination of duplication and waste, of which there is much, addressing changing circumstances, the fact that official development assistance from the Western powers and, and Japan used to be the primary source of investment for developing countries, but is now dwarfed by private capital flows. And uh, this change needs to be reflected in, in our development assistance programs. Fundamental reform has languished for a long time, and as a result, many programs are they're no longer fit for purpose. Today, the government, U.S. government funds programs created by dozens of large and small federal departments and agencies, more than 30 at last count, that have proliferated over the decades in response to the latest crisis and then never, never seem to go away. The combined effect is that U.S. foreign aid has become diffused, 
scattered unevenly, thinly, in an attempt to achieve an increased number of disparate goals with an unwieldy number of countries. And as a result, its foreign aid has been micromanaged and has lost coherence, flexibility, and vision. Fortunately, President Trump's uh, USAID administrator, Ambassador Mark Green, has pledged to make the hard decisions to reshape USAID in particular and American foreign aid in general. As Ambassador Green has said, aid should be aimed at building institutions that are effective, accountable, and ultimately replace aid. In other words, he wants to put USAID and the foreign aid programs of the United States out of business by having successful development strategies. And in that spirit, the Trump administration ordered a review and a redesign of foreign affairs and foreign assistance programs more than a year ago. To date, we haven't seen this comprehensive redesign rolled out publicly, although there have been some efforts to internally reorganize USAID. And the head of OPIC, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, has proposed a, uh, almost doubling the size of that agency with a new name, uh, something along the lines of a development finance institution or development finance corporation, which we've written about at Heritage. Uh, that's been uh, uh, the vehicle for that in Congress is the BUILD Act of 2018. So as you saw when you came in, Brett Schaefer and I authored a, a major paper last year where we outlined many recommendations to reform foreign assistance, including significantly restructuring USAID, expanding the role potentially of the Millennium Challenge Corporation, and reforms to eliminate duplicative work at state and AID in areas such as food aid and refugees. With that paper as a backdrop, we're joined today by, for a discussion on that topic by three eminent experts in development policy. I'm going to introduce all of them, and then we're going to take them in turn, and they're going to be make uh, presentations, and then we're going to have a time for questions. So first is uh, William Easterly, professor of economics at New York University and co-director of the NYU Development Research Institute. Dr. Easterly earned his PhD in economics at MIT. He is a prolific author of more than 60 peer-reviewed articles, which are frequently cited in the literature. Professor Easterly has written columns and reviews for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, the New York Review of Books, and the Washington Post. He's also the author of three books, the most recent of which, I have here the tyranny of experts, economists, dictators, and the forgotten rights of the poor, March 2014. He also wrote The White Man's Burden, Why the West's Efforts to, at aid, to Aid the Rest Have Done So Much Ill and So Little Good. And he wrote, uh, which, which won the F.A. Hayek Award from the Manhattan Institute. And he wrote The Elusive Quest for Growth, Economists, Adventures, and Misadventures in the Tropics. Our second speaker, we're delighted to have the Honorable Paul Applegarth. Mr. Applegarth is an honors graduate of Yale and earned both an MBA with high distinction and a JD from Harvard. Throughout his distinguished career in the U.S. government, the World Bank, and the private sector, Mr. Applegarth concentrated on development and, and, and continues to do so. And in light of that background, President George W. Bush appointed Paul to be the first CEO of the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Prior to that, Mr. Applegarth was managing director of Emerging Markets Partnership, an asset management firm that specialized in international private equity and debt investments in emerging markets. He was also chief operating officer of the Emerging Africa Infrastructure Fund, an innovative private-public partnership sector initiative sponsored by the British and European governments, which combined public sector money and private sector funds 
and investment skills to develop infrastructure in sub-Saharan Africa. Earlier, Paul worked in various Wall Street firms on other innovative equity and debt transactions. And finally, and certainly not least, we have the Honorable Jose Cardenas, who's currently with the consulting firm uh, Vision Americas, and he has nearly three decades of experience in Washington in the political process, especially in inter-American relations. Jose has uh, held se senior positions at the State Department, the National Security Council, and the U.S. Agency for International Development, where he was the acting assistant administrator for Latin America and the Caribbean. He received a master's from Georgetown and a bachelor's from Catholic and has written and spoken widely on hemispheric issues. And Jose is a strong advocate of open political and economic systems, including free trade and foreign investment, as catalysts to rapid economic growth. So we're delighted to have this panel. I think we're just, with, without further ado, we're going to turn to Professor Easterly. Thank you. Let me do a mic check that you can hear me in the back. I'm a soft-spoken guy from Ohio. So. I'm going to talk to you today about uh, the big picture on aid. And the big picture first has to recognize what I think is the fundamental cause of development. The fundamental cause of development is simply freedom, individual, political, economic freedom, uh, where freedom is present, development happens. Where freedom is absent, development does not happen. And so from that point of view, which I, I think there's abundant theoretical and empirical evidence for, from that point of view, the real question about aid is, does aid support freedom or does it undermine freedom? And I'm going to give you, I'm, I'm not going to claim that aid always or everywhere undermines freedom, but I'm going to give you two cautionary examples about how I think in the, in the current debate, there are two ways in which I've observed recently that aid has been undermining freedom. The first is going to be the idea of aid to support repressive regimes. And the second is going to be the idea of aid to prevent migration. Let me go take each of these in turn. Uh, aid to repressive regimes, I think, is, is very common in the... Uh, in the world today, I actually documented in it with empirical evidence that repressive regimes actually get more aid than free regimes do. And the increase in aid has been larger for more repressive regimes than it has been for more free regimes over the last 10 or 15 years. So there is a sad way in which a lot of official government aid and NGO aid is going to repressive regimes. And let me make it very concrete. Uh, one country that I I've written about and followed and been to is Ethiopia. Uh, there was a dictator named Mela Sinawi who was in power for a very long time in Ethiopia. He received lots and lots of aid from the U.S. government, from the U.K. government, from the World Bank, from the European aid agencies. And Mela Sinawi was an oppressive ruler who uh, was guilty of numerous human rights violations, some of them in the middle of foreign aid programs like forced resettlement in the context of a development program, uh, shooting down peaceful demonstrators on the street, 
And then one example that is very close to my heart is a, a peaceful journalist and blogger who is a democratic activist named Eskinder Nega was put in jail by Melis Sinawi in 2012 and sentenced to 28 years in jail for the crime of advocating for freedom in Ethiopia. And so it offends me personally at a very deep level that my taxpayer dollars are going to pay the security services that arrested Iskander Nega. They're going to pay the salaries of the jailers that are watching over Iskander Nega while he's in jail for 28 years. It's paying for the awful prison that is housing Iskander Nega. I think that's an unacceptable use of aid to support regime, uh, an oppressive regime. And frankly, aid that supports repression is, if freedom is the key to development, then aid that supports the lack of freedom is not developing a country, it's undeveloping a country. So aid is undeveloping Ethiopia. Eskender Nega uh, got a lot of recognition from human rights activists and activists of a free press around the world. He also got a lot of support from the Ethiopian diaspora that is here in Washington. And he was partly the focus of uh, heroic campaigns by democracy activists in Ethiopia. And to give you, uh, since some of this story could sound very dark, I want to give you one ray of light. This campaign was successful in freeing Eskindonega. I had the honor of meeting Eskindonega in person in my office a month ago in New York. So campaigning for freedom is not a hopeless cause. It can have some very happy moments of success. And it was very interesting to hear Eskinder's Nega, Nega's perspective on aid to Ethiopia when I met him. The line that he said that stuck with me, that has echoed with me ever since, is he said to me, speaking as like what he thinks he was speaking for many Ethiopians, speaking to American taxpayers, we don't want you to do good for us against our consent. We don't want you to do what you think is good for us against our consent. And that, for me, is a, a very eloquent statement of the idea of freedom. Uh, aid to a repressive regime is a non-consensual uh, relationship that is not is undermining freedom. Let me now move to the, the second point. Uh, the idea, and this is probably has already surprised you that I would give this an, as an example of a violation of freedom. The idea of aid that is going to prevent migration. So this idea I actually wrote about in my in my book. Um, thank you, Jim, for publicizing the book, so I don't have to. Available for a very low price on Amazon today. Uh, there's a chapter in there on on both uh, the chapters in there, but <clears throat> both on Eskinderega and on uh, migration. The idea of aid to prevent migration goes all the way back to aid to Ch Republican China in the 1920s and 30s to try to prevent Chinese from immigrating to the U.S. in the context of what was called the Oriental Exclusion Act of 1924 that completely banned Japanese and Chinese immigration to the U.S out of the idea that there was something very scary and threatening about Japanese and Chinese migrants. And that was used as justification for, for aid then. We hear it again today as, you know, now lots of talk, which is not new at all, 
about aid to what is called the Northern Triangle of, of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras in Central America to try to prevent the flood of Central American refugees coming to the U.S. So let me be clear about the way in which I think this is a violation of freedom. First of all, let me be very clear. I know this is not the majority view, <coughs> majority view of U.S. voters, but I, as a free market economist, I believe in free trade in goods. I believe also in free trade and labor services. I believe in freedom of association. So free trade and labor services means that I want to have the right to hire, to work with me or over me or under me, anybody that I want anywhere in the world, not just American citizens, if they are willing to take the job that I offer to them. That's a voluntary transaction that is just like a lot of other the voluntary transactions that we celebrate the benefits of in free markets. I give you a very homely personal example of that. Uh, I actually have a terrible, terrible record uh, at running the Development Research Institute of finding good employees. I'm just going to be really bad at doing interviews to find who are the good employees. So uh, I'm not implicating any any of you who I'm sure are all very good uh, employees of wherever you're working. But uh, I've had, to be honest, I've had some really terrible <laughs> employees because I'm so bad at hiring, hiring people. Uh, but... At one point, I lucked into a fantastic employee who made me incredibly productive working with her and, and in a very close working relationship with uh, a woman named Marina. I don't want to give her full name to protect her privacy. She was a citizen of Russia. She had studied with me in the master's program at NYU and then came to work for me afterwards. And she just made me, it was, she was very, ha she told me she was very happy in her job and really enjoyed the opportunity of doing that work. I benefited enormously from, from her contributions. Uh, but sadly, the severe restrictions on her visa uh, meant that she could only work for me for a very limited amount of time, and then she was forced to return to Russia, very much against her will and very much against my will. This is something that we often forget when we talk about immigration restrictions, that these restrictions are not only restrictions on the freedom of migrants, there are restrictions on our freedoms as U.S. citizens to hire and interact with whom we want, and to associate with whom we want. Freedom of travel, freedom of immigration is a freedom that allows us as U.S. citizens to have the right to find these mutually beneficial, positive sum, wonderfully beneficial relationships. So after Marina was forced to go back to Russia, I had more disastrous employees. My productivity went way down. I would have produced another book by now if uh, Marina had, had stayed there, if she had not been forced to leave. But I didn't. So that's, uh, that's uh, an attempt to take down the temperature on this heated immigration debate that we're having right now to show you in a very homely way just how beneficial it can be when we all do voluntary transactions with each other as we celebrate in the tradition of free market economics. Um, so what is... The idea of aid to prevent migration, so if you think about it, is telling poor people that want to migrate to the U.S., which is actually uh, wonderfully, a wonderfully beneficial development program, probably the most effective development program of all time has been migration. One really great study by Land Pritchett and Michael Clemens found that 82% of Haitians who have ever escaped poverty have done so by moving to the U.S., Meanwhile, uh, 
billions of dollars have been wasted on development aid to Haiti that has been largely ineffective at developing Haiti. So to tell poor people, we offer you, to say to them, we're going to take away your right to migrate, but we offer you instead a development program to develop you if you stay where you are. It's giving them something they don't want, taking something away they do want, and something we know from the track record is offering them, offering them something that doesn't work in exchange for something that does work, migration to, to a high-productivity place. So, you know, I, I respect very much the, uh, the, the views of those who oppose uh, relatively, who oppose free migration. I know it's very politically unrealistic to think that borders can be completely open, that they can be completely unrestricted. But, you know, I would argue that, uh, that we, those of us who have this view that, that I do should, you know, make the case. We have the right to be dem democratic dissenters from the will of the majority and argue that there should be, you know, relatively less restrictions on migration instead of relatively more. I think also the, you know, the, the, the idea that aid should be used to prevent migration is just an inherently offensive ideal to our ideal of freedom, even if you believe that migration should be have some controls. We have to be realistic about what it is really doing. It is, again, offering poor people something they don't want, taking away something they do want. And that's just an inherently offensive idea of supposedly benevolent development aid. And frankly, I think uh, the other way in which I think you may be surprised that I'm trying to link aid to the immigration debate, but I think aid is actually deeply implicated in the immigration debate. The other thing that aid has very unintentionally done is it's very common among aid advocates to say things like, "Aid, we need aid to prevent terrorism. We need aid to fight terrorism. And when you sort of unpack that argument, what do you think it is really saying? It is, it is implying that Poor people are prone to terrorism, prone to be terrorists, unless they get this rescue package from the U.S. of development aid that will prevent them from becoming terrorists. And then, of course, a lot of them is, are not, U.S. citizens know that probably a lot of them are not getting enough development aid. So then the prediction is that they will become terrorists <laughs> of, that, of that argument. Uh, that argument is completely empirically unfounded. First, of course, terrorism is very rare among any group. It's talking about, uh, you know, one in an ocean of millions in, in any group or any income classification. And second, terrorism is actually much more associated with more middle-income, higher-educated, richer countries, such as, you know, Saudi Arabia being a very rich country that produces far more terrorists than, you know, all of Africa, for example. So, you know, it, it's... Aid has been very implicated in unintentionally creating very negative, fearful images of poor people that has then influenced this debate that we have, that we have this fear of migrants that is based on a distorted information set that is being con conveyed by aid because it is in the, the self-interest of NGOs and aid advocates, and I've been, been guilty of this myself in trying to sell why development is important, why development aid is important to kind of like oh, we can reach a much larger audience and get much more money and more donations and more U.S. taxpayer funding if we sell aid as an answer to terrorism, not thinking about the implications that this is implying that poor people are prone to terrorism. So the unintentional effect is that we convey these, these negative, fearful images. I've seen this uh, personally in a video that really shocked me by the NGO Save the Children 
They put out a fundraising video that uh, portrayed a, a scary, very scary picture of a Syrian gunman with a rifle pointed at a child. What was strange about the picture was actually an English child that the gunman was pointing the gun at. And the picture had been totally staged. They had just made up, put on set, hired an actor to portray a gunman pointing a gun, portray a, a fictional Syrian gunman pointing a gun at an English child. I thought that would be highly effective at raising money from the UK public to, to portray Syrian gunmen threatening English children. And it was highly effective at raising money for Save the Children. But it also spread the image of, you know, Syrian refugees are all gunmen pointing guns at, at uh, European and American children. And that's this very negative consequence. So, you know, how does this contrast with the free market perspective. The free market perspective, you know, there's historians of economic thought credit Adam Smith with inventing the idea of analytical equality of all individuals. And we think of individuals not as defined by the some innate characteristic of proneness to violence or something like that of some group that they belong to. We define individuals as, as analytically equal who are responding to incentives and institutions. And, you know, and poor people who live in oppressive societies with bad institutions have bad outcomes. But you take those same individuals and put them in a, a society with good institutions and incentives and they flourish, of which, you know, the Haitian example earlier was a, was a, a precise example of. Uh, and that's, you know, that to me is the core free market perspective on, on how we think about groups and nations and individuals that we think of individuals as being primordially equal and not defined by the group or nation or race or ethnic group that they belong to and responding to institutions and incentives. And that, to me, is the free market argument for equality that would advocate you know, much more humanity and tolerance and, and sympathetic thinking towards, uh, towards those who want to flee from oppressive societies and come to a free society, it's precisely those who love freedom who want to make that move. In fact, I mentioned earlier the Ethiopian diaspora played a, a big role in the freeing of Iskander Nega. They were precisely a group of individuals who were able to free the oppression in Ethiopia because they love freedom and can come to the U.S., many of them, a large community of them here in Washington, and then you know spread freedom back to Ethiopia and achieve this partial success of the, the freeing of political prisoners, including Iskander Nega and some political liberalization that is going on now. So there are ways in which you know migration can be a very positive sum gain in which all sides gain from this from this beneficial transaction. Now I know that there are very good arguments on the other side of the of of that debate, and I'm not going to try to project any kind of claim, I think the debate has been poisoned by those who try to project some claim to moral superiority if they happen to hold one side or the other. I'm not claiming that. I, I don't feel morally superior to those who oppose immigration. I may be completely wrong. I may be completely misthinking it. I may be misguided. They may be right. You know, we're in a democratic society where we should be having a civil conversation about this and not shouting insults at each other. But what I do believe is that you know, the business of development is mainly the business of freedom. And, you know, you cannot judge aid in isolation from other U.S. government policies. You cannot judge aid in, in isolation from the whole agenda of promoting freedom everywhere in the world. Every 
every nation, every every group, every individual, everywhere in the world deserves freedom, and the business of age should be only about promoting freedom. It should not be the opposite of by supporting repressive regimes that deny freedom to their own citizens. It should not be in the more subtle context of taking away freedom to migrate in returns for coercive development programs that they, that they don't want, that don't work. I believe that uh, today in the 21st century, we need really to move beyond the whole aid debate and go embrace wholeheartedly the debate that the cause of development is the cause of spreading human freedom worldwide. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Next up is uh, is Paul Applegard. I guess I'll stand up. Okay. I have a tendency to move around if I'm standing, so that's going to drive the audio people crazy. But that's, generally, I don't need a mic. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. And before I begin, I want to really recognize uh, the work of Heritage initially by Brett Schaefer, but picked up by Jim on the Index of Economic Freedom and some of the other measures uh, of what um, what good policies count. I think a long time, many years ago, they were the ones who recognized that policies help drive, good policies help drive human satisfaction and human growth and human betterment. And economic freedom is key to that. You have the World Bank doing some other measures important. You have some NG- other NGOs or think tanks doing things, whether it's transparency, but uh, international. Uh, but uh, Heritage really blazed the trail with the economic freedom indicator, both the, the idea behind measuring policy and then the quality of the effort and the amount of effort to do it right. So thank you. A um, couple of basic messages today. Um, one, I think one of the good things is that making foreign aid more effective is not a partisan issue. You'll find as many people on the left as are on the right who want foreign aid to be effective, and by that I mean to benefit its recipients and also serve the U.S. interest. Um, the obstacles of making it more effective are more institutional, whether it's congressional uh, committees that have, and committee chairs who are interested in terms. Uh, inertia bureaucrats who who really basically need leadership to be led in a certain direction. Otherwise, they'd rather keep doing what they're doing because they know how to do it. Uh, some people around uh, the Beltway who have a strong economic interest in the perpetuation of the status quo. But that is not a partisan issue. And I think there are a lot of opportunities to reach out to others uh, and other even think tanks in Washington to work collaboratively collaboratively to uh, make some change. Um, when we're talking, clarify, when we're talking about it, at least what I'm talking about, recognize there are different types. And, uh, I mean, there's traditional disaster relief, which people frequently forget about, which is there's an earthquake or tsunami, and USAID is premier in all the world in intervening in those situations. That is foreign aid as well. That's not what we're talking about today. There's straight humanitarian relief, which comes out of uh, really a desire to really help very poor people, charitable institutions. But again, that's not so much what I'm talking about. There's the reward your friends foreign aid. Some people do some things for us, other countries. We basically call it different things, whether it's military security assistance or it's just 
other kinds of programs. We recognize what we're doing, what they're doing, and we want to somehow or other uh, have that recognized in the country. And then there's long-term development assistance, which is really trying to make the lives of poor people better, not by necessarily giving them money, but by creating an opportunity for them to help themselves by either by establishing good governance in the countries, uh, a rule of law, uh, uh, creating economic freedoms, uh, freedom of the press, other things by which they and their society have, that creates an environment of opportunity in which they can better themselves and we can help them along the way. But the ultimate responsibility is there. And it, uh, Heritage is right in arguing that good governance and dem- uh, is a key, a democratic government is a key to long-term development. I also think we probably forget about that. We're also talking about local ownership. We cannot make a country development. We cannot derive it. It's got to be owned in the country. And the other things, we, we, you really have to look at the results and the outcomes. And it seems to be the three core lessons which of long term of, of 40 years at a time foreign assistance which MCC was built on were those three lessons. Policies matter, results matter, the countries must do it. And we, from the, the first days when President Bush 43 said we want countries, we want to come help countries to help themselves and Colin Powell and Andy Rice were involved and then was on the Hill, that was the key of philosophy. And that's a quite focused and somewhat different, and if you allow the other programs we're doing, we are providing humanitarian assistance, whether or not the countries, I'd like to like them to be effective or not, but it's going to a lot of folks who need it in the countries, uh, whether or not the country governments themselves care about it very much, uh, similarly with some of the other things. But real long-term development is built on those principles of good government environment, good policy, and again, doing things to get results. Now, there have been a lot of proposals and, uh, around how to make foreign assistance better. A lot of them involve reorganization and other things. Uh, and I'm not going to go through those again. You're familiar with all the arguments. So I'm actually going to talk about a couple things that could be done that don't require legislation and could be done right now if the institutions themselves would, uh, uh, would do it. And if the administration gets behind it and the, uh, one that did require legislation was MCC's ability to uh, to uh, do regional compacts. I think we have to. I actually advocated this. I did a piece with uh, with the Center for Global Development, the Center for American Progress, about how this could work. But we'll have to see at the end of the day how it's actually implemented and done. But that's done. But what doesn't really require legislation is proactively working with other donors. If you read a lot of the testimony and a lot of the speeches by others, uh, they will talk about working with partners and talking about other donors. But if you read, it always sounds like what they're trying to do is to get them on board to fund U.S. programs and U.S. initiatives. And this is because the U.S. has for a long time to be the big gorilla in the room, and it didn't have to listen to anybody else. And if it wanted to go in and do it, it did it, and other people might or might not. But the reality is, partly because of size, partly because of distance, a lot, number of other donors have actually got some quite innovative programs going on. And so what I'm talking about working with other donors, I'm talking about finding out what they've done and listening to them and trying to figure out how we might learn from them. 
Uh, I think particularly to things that have been done in the development of infrastructure in, in, in Africa and elsewhere, in the facilitation of private sector investment. There's a lot of quite innovative techniques that were done a decade ago by uh, FMO, which is the Development Finance Agency in, uh, in the Netherlands, or uh, British DFID, or a number of the European governments. Very, those lessons are still not incorporated in our development work and in our aid programs. And yet, if you real, once you recognize that, as I think Bill said, ODA is no longer the major flow of these countries, and that the major flow of the countries is both either direct foreign investment or repatriation of capital by people who are in the countries, uh, doing the kind of things that these uh, other institutions have done to to really help facilitate that and look at the creative instruments to make that happen is important. So I would say listen to them and more than listen to them. I think AID has, and and Andrew Nachos is very good about this, with, with the leaders of those agencies, but at MCC, we actually had somebody designated within MCC to work with those agencies all the time to get their ideas and make sure we were listening to them, understood what was going on. And it's an organizational, operational commitment. In our case, a couple of people was a much larger percentage of staff that would be at AID, but it was at a senior level. And you could get a lot of ideas, and that gave uh, us a basis for really talking and working with the, those donors and who are also working in the countries to try to do something new and innovative and rather than simply try to do a big funding program. And, and so I would encourage AID and other agencies that are working in the countries to actually look, to actually designate somebody at a senior level in the organization to work with those agencies and to feed their ideas in. Uh, personally, I think MCC should uh, should return to doing smaller compacts, at least for the first compact. I think there was a shift uh, uh, after a couple years to fell into the trap of being, being the U, believing that U.S. government dollars were the solution. We had to have a lot of U.S. government dollars going into the program or into a country to make a developmental impact. And I think in some ways the fundamental lesson of the creation of MCC, which is that policies matter and good governance matter, uh, got lost because those those uh, uh, really attract other capital. And what you need to you need to have a huge compacts which can be quite good can take are very complex. They can take three, four, five years to get formulated and put in place, and then start dispersing. Well, that might that works potentially for the World Bank, but we're talking about policy change and governance. And you have to do something in the, within the political life of the political leaders in the countries. They have to see the results on the ground before the next election or within a couple of elections. If you wait five years, if their successor gets all the benefits, you lose a lot of the incentive of, uh, of, of an MCC compact in promoting and rewarding governance reform. So I would, I would hope MCC would look quite seriously at, for initial compacts at least, Doing quicker, smaller, faster, if you like. It's a little bit redundant. Uh, but um, in terms of getting the countries fully engaged once they've been named, help, helping them develop the compact, and beginning to get the project visible on the ground to, to the beneficiaries. A lot of expectations are high when an MCC compact is uh, uh, country's first named and then when its compact is rewarded, uh, signed. But if something happens for three years, 
uh, it really loses its ability to influence policy. Second compact, so they have them, can be larger. You've got more time to build it. You can begin thinking about it if a country's on track, and you have the time to develop it, even the course of the, course of the first compact, you be thinking about it. But get the first rewards, the first compacts done uh, with the country so that you can reward those leaders who stepped up and pushed for good governance during their terms of office. And a lot of talk about public-private partnerships these days. I've talked about it. I talked about it at CSIS a, a couple of months ago. But the reality, and I think they're interesting, but they are not a panacea. They are, having done one, it's actually quite successful, they are very hard to do well. So uh, if you go, the objectives, if you're, it's a really public-private partnership, the parties have different interests, but you can find a way to work together. But sorting through those interests and introducing the checks and balances and mutual Rewards uh, are is difficult, and operation begins to be difficult. So it is not a quick rubber stamp solution. But I certainly encourage that. It's one way to get uh, uh, greater influence on things like outcomes and results and effectiveness built into the system and operation. But an, an easier solution is actually to get more private sector people, and I mean that by private sector broadly defined, non-government people, in the governance of the. Uh, of the programs. MCC was fortunate. Four of the directors are not part of the administration. They're from outside. So we're private sector, but we're NGOs, former political leaders. That different perspective, different type of thinking is very helpful. Uh, fun, a public-private partnership I did in, in Sub-Saharan Africa also had private sector members, not only on the governing board, but on the investment committee and on the original committee screening projects. And they had quite different perspectives than the other individuals who were there. So find ways to try to incorporate different views and different perspectives into the decision-making process to the extent that you can. Uh, sometimes there'd be legal constraints on that, but it might have to be advisory rather than actually voting. Voting really helps. But uh, the point is, if you really want to incorporate results, detailed implementation plans, focus on outcomes, it is better to get people who are awarded in their careers for focusing on that, and that not necessarily is traditional uh, uh, people who come up to the uh, government. Uh, and finally, I think there's a bunch of other things I could say, and it, I, I personally think as I'm coming back to the question of repatriation capital and foreign investment. There could be a lot more work done on development of capital markets in countries. This is a shameless plug and self-promotion of a paper I did about probably eight or nine years ago about how to do promote uh, capital market development. We're not talking about building stock exchanges, okay? We're talking about institutional investors in the countries, domestic pension funds. We're talking about research analysts, all the accoutrements that come with a functioning capital market. You can provide support for that with a decent securities law, with a, a promoting good governance and rule of law. Uh, that's how your capital begins to flow. You liquefy it, you get people, and you get to people who are domestically, who probably know best what works best in their country, no matter how much time we as an outsider might, uh, might, uh, know or do. They're the ones that are doing the, can do the allocation if they have the ability of capital to their benefit and the country's benefit if they, uh, uh, if the institutions are there to help support them. Um, I think that's enough. Thank you very much. <laughs> and now Jose Cardenas. Jim, I think I'll uh, 
it's okay, I'll I'll do it in from from the panel. Um, I'm nice and comfortable here. As uh, Jim was uh, introducing um, distinguished panelists, uh, I heard MIT, Harvard, Yale, and then there's me. Um, what I thought I would do uh, was bring a perspective to this discussion, uh, less as one of a development practitioner and more as one as a practitioner of foreign policy. Um, and somebody who, in my experience, has seen up close the important symbiotic relationship of the three Ds in carrying out U.S. foreign policy, defense, diplomacy, and development. So, but when we talk about the development component, again, I, I'll associate myself with the remarks that Jim made about the difficult state of our foreign assistance bureaucracy and its Im implementation. And I was struck by a quote in uh, the paper prepared by Brett Schaefer and Jim about reforming foreign assistance, which I, I highly recommend. I think it's one of the best uh, articulations of a new vision in a practical sense, very, very practical recommendations. The quote is... Um, no objective supporter of foreign aid can be satisfied with the existing program, actually a multiplicity of programs. Bureaucratically fragmented, awkward, and slow, its administration is diffused over a haphazard and irrational structure covering at least four departments and several other agencies. The program is based on a series of legislative measures and administrative procedures conceived at different times and for different purposes, many of them now obsolete, inconsistent, unduly rigid, and thus unsuited for our present needs and purposes. Its weaknesses have begun to undermine confidence in our effort both here and abroad. You know who said that? John F. Kennedy in 1961. And in... in most ways, we are still facing the same challenges. And think about it, folks. This, this was uh, an era where our foreign assistance probably had its, its strongest raison d'etre, and that was the Cold War, and our efforts to contest the spread of communism in the developing world. But to, uh, to criticize this situation is not to recommend uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, it is to, to recognize that the imperative of a complete refocusing and reorganization of our foreign, po uh, foreign assistance apparatus to meet the challenges of the 21st century. So we, when, when I say that, that uh, the three Ds, the defense, diplomacy, and development, uh, I'll use some examples. For example, when uh, during the administration of George W. Bush, when uh, during the height of the war on terror, we found out the hard way that we didn't have all of our capacities 
in full gear in Iraq and Afghanistan. Our men and women in uniform are the best at what they do in the world by far. And that is blowing up things and killing bad people. But you need a civilian capacity, as we found out, in Iraq and Afghanistan. You need a civilian capacity between kinetic force and diplomacy to get into these uh, unstabilized areas and implement stabilization and post-conflict programs. Those come from our foreign assistance uh, pots of money, if you will. So we are always going to need something between kinetic force and diplomacy. I know, as somebody who once worked in a congressional office, that there are few things more unpopular with the folks back home than foreign aid. But in many ways, it's based on outdated concepts. Uh, I, I can I can hear them now. Um, people complaining about uh, foreign kleptocrats uh, pocketing U.S. assistance and putting it in Swiss bank accounts. Well, we've adapted over the years. Uh, so it's not, it, we don't, we have very few direct transfers to governments abroad. It is mostly working, uh, directly with folks on the ground through contractors or through our mission in, in foreign capitals. But still, that still, uh, necessitates what we've been talking about, a new approach to the way that foreign assistance is doled out. And, and, and it's important to define what exactly it is we're talking about because we do have various programs that all fall under the rubric of foreign assistance. We have humanitarian and health assistance. We have development assistance, which is the, the part that's focused on long-term development, as my distinguished colleagues have talked about. We have political assistance and we have military and security assistance. So from my, from my perspective, I don't think we need to uh, tinker much with humanitarian and health assistance. We do that very well. We are a country that is founded on Judeo-Christian values. From the wealthy, the, the fortunate, we have a responsibility to help those less fortunate. I don't think that humanitarian and health assistance is something that that um, that most Americans would consider zeroing out, if you will. Military and security assistance, it's the same thing. I think that, uh, that uh, mostly uh, conducted by the Defense Department, it is a, uh, a crucial, crucial element of our foreign policy for obvious reasons. Where I see the most opportunity for refinement is in long-term development assistance and political assistance. I think that what we need to see is new concepts in the implementation of those two uh, lines of assistance. And when we think about uh, you know, what those concepts should be. I, I think that there's, there are a few, uh, uh buzzwords. Um, I think that, that, that we need to be realistic. 
We cannot be all things to all people. We cannot spread ourselves so thin that we dilute the impact of our assistance. We need to focus on a few things that we do well and do them well. I think we have to have a more flexible system. Right now, our assistance is always written through Congress, uh, directing how much, where, when uh, is going to be spent. We need more flexibility in our assistance to, for example, scale up quickly in response to national emergency, in, in response to international emergencies. As I remember when I was in the Bush administration, when the Russians invaded uh, the country of Georgia, all of a sudden everyone was running around trying to find money to uh, to send to Georgia that would help the people there. Uh, not, it wasn't military assistance. It was a gesture by the United States to support the Georgian people at a time when the Russians were invading and obviously bullying the, uh, the Georgian people. We have to get back to a very clear definition in our development and in our political assistance to what is in the self-interest of the United States of America. I, for one, believe that our foreign assistance in those two categories should be directly aligned with whatever administration is in power with their national security strategy. Every president, every administration develops a national security strategy that comes out of the, the uh, National Security Council that defines what mobilizes and what uh, is important, what are the critical needs of our national security policy. We need to align those aspects of our overseas uh, assistance with that national security strategy. And for example, well, uh, what, would, what would we mean by that? I think that um, in, the, in, in a review of what our interests are abroad, you have to, uh, we have to identify the countries that are facing uh, a radical Islamist uh, insurgency. Those are countries that we ought to pay spe special attention to. Countries on the periphery of Russia. These are countries that, that uh, Vladimir Putin is openly threatening and intimidating. Those are people that look to the United States. We spent 50, 40 years of the Cold War in solidarity with these countries of uh, Central Europe. And now it is, it is I, I would suggest it is it definitely in the national interest of the United States to continue to support them in 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 their efforts to protect their sovereignty and there's we have issues even closer to home we have uh breakdowns of democracy going on right now in Venezuela and Nicaragua we have lack of democracy in Cuba these are also uh situations close to home that should concern US policymakers who should have the flexibility in our assistance to develop policies that pr promote U.S. interests in these specific situations. So those are, those are the guidelines. And, and for measuring the effectiveness of our assistance, I, I think we have to 
Um, I, I, uh, I commend uh, Dr. Easterly for his emphasis on freedom. We have to, you know, we, we, we have, in order to justify programs, uh, we, 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 the system gets very bogged down in measurements and evaluations of specific programs in outputs, inputs and outputs. Well, we have to start thinking about more about outcomes than outputs. If a country is moving in a broad-based way to more freedom, more open society, more productive economies, and less corruption, then and we have metrics for that. Uh, Heritage has their their economic report. Transparency International has anti-corruption reports. The World Bank has ease of the World Bank has ease of doing business reports. Let's put all those together and figure. Let's figure out who's going in the right direction. Who, which countries are exhibiting the political will to do the right thing for their people, and let's support them. That is another component. We have our own self-interest, our own national security. Uh, imperatives. We have a response, we have a, an interest, a national interest in helping those countries that are making the tough decisions to improve the lot of their people. And finally, as uh, has been alluded to, the, the 500 pound gorilla in any, uh, reassessment and reorganization of our foreign, uh, assistance is the U.S. Congress. They are embedded in the, uh, the money, uh, the, the, the levels of funding, the direction of our foreign assistance. In many ways, the executive branch is absolutely paralyzed in the conduct of our implementation of foreign assistance to Congress. And again, this is not to uh, to bash Congress on this because Congress is also facing the people back home. What are you doing with our foreign aid? Well, I'll tell you, they get involved. And they get involved to a degree that they take almost all the power away from the executive branch on the issue of foreign aid. So any effort to reorganize and make our assistance more efficient, more flexible, and more uh, delivering results for U.S. national interests, Congress has to be at the table. And obviously, that's 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 easier said than done. But it is a it is simply a reality of the way that it's all built. And with that, I'll turn it back to Jim. Thanks so much, Jose. And before we go to the audience, does anyone on the panel have a response to anything that's been said so far that you'd like to address? Okay, so we'll go to questions. And I think, uh, I don't know if, if Ambassador Miller is uh, is ready with a question or not. <laughs> okay, I did want to make sure my boss got the first uh, Chance, our editor in chief of our Index of Economic Freedom, who, and we appreciate the kind words uh, about our index. Uh, thank you very much. It is our roadmap to development by the Heritage Foundation. So please, questions, and please uh, do uh, keep to a form of question and not um, a statement. Thank you. Yeah. 
this right here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Please state your name for oh, sorry. affiliation. Yeah. Dave Onsbach, just taxpaying American citizen, that's affiliation. Uh, I guess the question, um, you know, a lot of foreign aid uh, we give to, to Israel, you know, even though it's considered a, a prosperous and wealthy country, and I know 50 years ago a major political leader was murdered because of that, Robert F. Kennedy, because of his support for this kind of aid. To Israel, uh, so I'm, I'm trying to think. It, 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 do most of you continue to support uh, uh, aid to Israel? Uh, number one, and number two, uh, <coughs> arms sales to countries like Saudi Arabia with a, with an authoritarian record, uh, uh, at least as repressive as China. Uh, do most of you continue to support uh, aid to, to Israel, uh, um, even though it's a quite prosperous country? Uh, you know, um, compared, you know, what I'm saying compared to, yeah. to poor countries, uh, and you think that those, uh, you think both of these programs should uh, be reformed? Okay, thanks for that question. Who would like to take that? Maybe, Thank you. maybe, who, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, but let's take a couple more, and then we'll have a, a round. So please, Gordon. Uh, Gordon Johnson. I came to work in Washington to work in the Marshall Plan. And, uh, Not many people can say that. Came, you did a good job. <laughs> came back to work on on privatization. You did the last one of the aid program. <laughs> when state-owned enterprises were seen as part of the problem, um, but the first country we went to work in was Honduras, and the consultant that we sent down after I'd explained privatization and why that's going to be great for the country, and he said, Gordon, the first thing you have to do is convinced that 20 families that run the country not to be greedy this time. And this, uh, we've heard a lot about the, I mean, Ethiopia, uh, need for freedom, economic freedom, we, all the needs we have, all the, but I haven't heard anything specifically so far today <laughs> that would <clears throat> give me some clues. What are we going to do different specifically rather than just generalities about more of this and more of that, but I don't get the feel. Who's going to do it? How? Is the private sector going to do it? Are we going to sit back and wait for the countries? What are we going to do about Venezuela? We talked about Venezuela, Cuba, these countries where uh, change is needed, but how do you bring about change? Okay, and what, let's have one more, and then we'll have uh, responses. Um, back here, please. Yeah. Thank you, Jessica Trisco Darden. I'm assistant professor at American University and the Jean Kirkpatrick Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Um, thank you all for, for having this conversation here today. My question to you is what role U.S. foreign aid should play when we have a contraction of freedoms? So, for example, recently the Philippines said that they were not going to negotiate an additional MCC compact. They've also refused EU aid because of uh, political conditionality and rule of law conditionality. What role can U.S. foreign assistance play in that in that context of kind of contracting rule of law and civil and political freedoms. Thanks. Excellent question. So who'd like to take a crack at these? I'll start with the professor, I guess. Okay. Um, yeah, so um, let, let me do say one thing in rea reaction to my uh, distinguished colleague, Jose Cardenas. Um, you know, I think in a in our soft diplomatic way, you and I are presenting the opposite viewpoints on the utility of uh, selling development as a as a way to fight terrorism. 
And uh, you, you are um, suggesting there is a complementarity between defense, development, and diplomacy, which was an idea very popular in both the Bush and Obama administrations. Uh, whereas I'm trying to argue the opposite. I really think there is no complementarity, that there are really opposite causes. Uh, I don't think – I think it is misdiagnosing the problem of terror. The terrorism is not caused by poverty. It's caused by evil people and evil ideologies. And poor people are not innately prone to terrorism. It's, uh, it's that, that kind of image that has been unintentionally conveyed by the idea of development as a solution to terrorism as as – as I tried to argue, done done great damage in our image of poor people that has affected the immigration debate. And, um, you know, that's uh, – the, these are not generalities. These are real real-life ideas that have, you know, very – can have very negative consequences. And so that I respectfully – you know, I respect very much your opinion and, and your justification for development. It's, it's – I'm a, frankly a minority dissenter on this issue, but that's I, I'm offering you that dissent for your for your consideration. Um, on the other questions, uh, aid to Saudi Arabia again is another case of you know suppressing a regime that's not only repressive at extremely repressive at home, but perpetrating war war crimes in Yemen and selling them arms and giving them aid. Uh, it's just again it's. It's the opposite of freedom. It's supporting uh, the denial of freedom to to uh, Saudi citizens, to the citizens of Yemen that are the victims of Saudi the Saudi military campaign. Um, you know, when when you say what what should we do, and you know, why are you offering these lofty generalities? Well, I think you know the the ideals of of Freedom and liberty are not empty generalities. I think they have been very powerful ideas in human history and are still very powerful today. I think that ideal of, of uh, democratic political freedom was not an idea, uh, an empty generality to Eskinder Nega when he was in jail and the campaign of Ethiopian activists to uh, reverse that oppression is, is not based on empty generalities. It's based on the noble ideals that have made our, our own accomplishments in the United States, the, the society that we are today. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't apologize for, for offering you these lofty generalities. They are, they are the ideals that are the lifeblood of, of development and human well-being and human flourishing. Um, after that, I, I have nothing to say. I, uh, on the issue of, uh, Middle East, obviously the geopolitical situation necessitates in the eyes of successive U.S. policymakers some very, very difficult trade-offs. Um, nobody uh, would defend in any way the certain conditions that the, the, the Saudi people are forced to live under. We are, as we have been since the end of World War II, uh, our economic prosperity has almost been held hostage to the oil-producing countries. And that necessitates, again, some hard decisions about 
how U.S. policy should be conducted in that area of the world. It's uh, decisions that have been supported by both Republicans and Democrats in the whole post-war period, and it has cost us. It has cost the United States uh, in its image in many ways, uh, leveled it open to charges of hypocrisy. Um, I would recommend uh, reading Elliot Abrams' latest book, where he tackles some of these issues. How do you promote human rights at the same time that you are conducting normal relations with a government like Saudi Arabia? These are problems that have taxed U.S. policymakers for 50 years. And if somebody comes up with all the answers, I hope they would write a book uh, so we we can all learn. I think that on the issue of Honduras, absolutely, um, the elites uh, like it the way it is, and it's very hard to break through. I think that mystery, uh, development is not a mystery. We know what works. It's rule of law. It's freedom. It is uh, getting regulations and government restrictions off the back, the backs of private citizens to open up opportunity and free uh, individual initiative. And the challenge, once again, is go. most of these societies uh, of these types are under the thumb of elites that like it the way it is because they benefit the most from it. Again, it is, uh, it is a problem that has vexed U.S. policymakers for 50, 60 years. And we keep uh, attempting to uh, convince or push, maybe we need to be stronger. Maybe we need to be more uh, uh, uncompromising with these types of leaders that are denying opportunities to their fellow citizens and use more of our leverage as the United States of America to force change in their behavior. But it comes down to political will, ladies and gentlemen. It comes down to strong, visionary leadership in these countries. And unfortunately, people with those visions and those strengths only come uh, once every few generations. And so it's, it's, a, it's a tough nut to crack. Um, on the issue of countries where we see contractions of uh, freedom, our aid apparatus is has the flexibility and the capacity to uh, also counter those situations whereby we can shift. It's not – again, it comes down to uh, our system is not flexible enough, but we have the capacity – we have the capability to shift assistance to civil society groups that will attempt to hold their government accountable. And so uh, whether, uh, you know, whether it's through the National Endowment for Democracy um, and its affiliated organizations, through other contracting organizations that have experience, we also have what are called uh, 
uh, cross-border programs. This is into countries where we don't have a mission. In fact, we don't have a good enough relationship with the host government uh, to have an aid mission in the embassy, even if we have an embassy in a country. But we can uh, – we have systems whereby, for example, in Iran, where U.S. assistance makes its way into Iran – Attempting to, to to bolster civil society in those countries against uh, governments that are violating their rights. So we have the capacity. It's it is having the will to and, and the 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 will to, to to redirect more resources into those capacities and have more flexibility to scale them up quicker. Paul. Didn't want to be in the middle or in the part of that debate, but I'm stuck in the middle anyway. But uh, I think that your question goes back to there are lots of types of foreign assistance, and that's and a lot of the flows you're talking about, the Saudi Arabia and Israel, are not do not fall into what I'm talking about development assistance. That's the reward your friends type aid. Some of it, you can, some of it's military assistance. Uh, I do think that in some, and there are certain programs in the State Department involve large amounts of money to some very poor countries. And I did, uh, back forever, year, years ago, but if, what I would, wait, where's this money going? And if you're going to write this kind of check, what are you trying to achieve and what are the results? And, you know, where are the targeted programs rather than just have it flow into some tribal areas? Okay. What, what, why can't we establish some disciplines about the objectives and outcomes and how you're going to use the money? If the money's actually available, let's try to get some real impact for it other than simply reward the country. Frankly, I never got a really satisfactory answer for that. Um, but I do think greater look uh, at the effectiveness of these programs and what these non – they don't call – don't confuse them. I call them development programs. But even the Reward Your Friends program is taking a greater look at their impact and what you're trying to achieve and whether the money will actually achieve that, it would be a good discipline to have. Great. That might be a great segue. I'd like to give a chance for Ambassador Miller and also Brett Schaefer to weigh in uh, before we go to any further questions. And both of them have worked either at the U.N. or on U.N. issues for a long time. Before we do that, let me just finish on, on Doris. Yeah. Okay. A lot of that, again, because it's nitty-gritty, we said MCC. We evaluated how the compact was chosen. How did they pick their priority? And if it was written by a couple of people in the government, then we it didn't pass our test. We we basically two tests. What are you trying to achieve, and will it work? And then secondly, how did you pick it? And you ended up with a, com- a program which much more targeted to rural areas with controls on flows, and so it was much more difficult for the elites to benefit from it. Okay. I mean, you can. That's you know, that's not grand development policy, or uh, but that actually seemed to have an impact. I don't know the final results of that uh, compact, but the point is trying to make sure that the people deciding, uh, the people that are intent deciding what the benefit ought to be, are the ones making the decision. And you put what the goals of the compact are on the on the web so they can see it, and the web is available no matter how poor the country is generally to people, and, and how you progress against the results. That kind of transparency acts as some discipline about keeping the elites out. There's one country I remain nameless where they were named 
they were named. And the USAID court uh, head of mission actually wrote their compact proposal. The head of AID almost fired the guy on the spot and said, you don't get it. And recall, and point is, you really have to push out the push out the decision made to the country and make sure they really understand it. Uh, and that helps control the influence of the elites. Is in it the perfect? the Millennium Challenge program work, you were really in the answering this, my question when you were set up in the sense that <clears throat> it's not working in these bad places. Let's pick good places and right. we'll work there. Right. Uh, is that working? I believe the general assessments are, yes, it is working. I'll defer to the... Um, in cases where it didn't work, one of the disciplines you stop the compact. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the flexibility uh, in the programs. The flexibility that AID frequently doesn't have is to stop. <laughs> All right? That's the greatest flexibility. Stop. And it's a question of in the Philippines, they may have said they're not going to have a second compact. The real issue is whether they ought to stop the first compact. Okay? They may be, you know, not having the second is... Uh, there may be may nobody negotiating on the other side of the table because MCC decided not going to go ahead. So that is a fairly effective degree of flexibility. And you have to be tough. I happen to think having non, uh, non-government non people in the decision-making at the board level and elsewhere to enforce those disciplines is quite helpful, and I would recommend that. You know, I, I just want to add to, to, uh, to Paul Apogarth's uh, comments is that one of the uh, points uh, raised in the Heritage Paper is whether to uh, adopt those principles from the MCC uh, uh, organization. And, and I, I, the entire raison uh, d'etre uh, of the organization was to demand from the recipient certain levels of commitments that are uh, measurable and are verifiable, uh, and then you begin to negotiate a an assistance uh, uh, contract with that country. So it was it is definitely uh, premised on a two way street for uh, acceptable uh, beneficial uh, activity and conduct on behalf of the host government for development in uh, in. And the answer to our uh, prevent, uh, providing that assistance. Now, the big question is is whether to take those principles and adapt them to the whole range of U.S. development assistance. That's the point in the paper. Great. Uh, Ambassador Miller. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for the discussion. Um, I just have one one comment and then a, a specific question for Mr. Applegarth. Um, the comment would be um, that it's always been a very difficult conceptual issue for me to get beyond the idea that if freedom is the ultimate goal of what we're trying to achieve with with aid programs and economic freedom as we study it at the Heritage Foundation – um, is in large measure uh, re- revolving around the idea of the absence of government um, in the lives of people, um, that it's very difficult to imagine or conceive of how uh, government operating, the government of the United States through a subsidy program, which is what we do with aid flows, uh, can and often working through governments in foreign countries, 
is somehow promoting this freedom of individuals inside those countries. I, I just think that's a, a difficult problem to overcome in many cases. Uh, but the specific question I wanted to ask um, is a little bit more positive than that. Um, again, uh, you all seem to agree with Dr. Easterly that freedom is the main goal here. And, and in the MCC process, uh, much of the progress towards freedom seems to occur in the development of the compact or, or indeed in the process of a country becoming, making itself eligible for a, a compact. So would it be fair to say that the uh, the the major benefits are being achieved before the money flows rather than as a result of the money flowing. One more answer to you first. If you want to know whether MCC is successful, look at, go to the website, look, all the compacts and the results of what they're going to achieve are there. You can judge for yourself in aggregate. Uh, first, I'm a little puzzled by your comment because you measure economic freedom. Now, the things you measure are government uh, policies at the end of the day, I think, with the index. And so the government has a role in, the, in uh, creating an environment of economic freedom. I would probably define development slightly different than the bill. Freedom is part of it, but that, to me, it's creating the opportunity for people to help themselves and an environment and inherit, I think, in a capitalist uh, free market system is that kind of freedom. Um, the... Do, I'm sorry, come back to restate your question. Do you have, uh, yeah. uh, the question is, does the benefit of an MCC program actually uh, primarily occur before the money flows as a result of the actions the government takes to become eligible? It's a marathon, not a sprint uh, development. And I think we one of the things about MCC, it waits, it wants to see performance in terms of policies being implemented before it names a country as a compact. And so it's, and if a country deviates from that, it can stop. It's different than a lot of foreign aid models where a country promises to do something, doesn't do it, and the aid program can't be stopped because of a variety of reasons. So the fundamental model is different. But, you know, the, there are a lot of policies still need to be improved in all countries, no matter what their level is. What we certainly saw is the bar yeah, and MCC measures whether it passes its indicators by how you're doing relative to your peer group of the same income, uh, per capita income countries. That bar, at least for the first several years, rose. World Bank used to talk about the MCC effect on policy. You can see countries, uh, staying, uh, countries passing, uh, you know, changing policies in order to, uh, uh, to qualify for MCC. And I get a lot of anecdotes of very presidents of countries told me the things they were doing and did. So I think being static, a country that might have qualified at one point would not continue to qualify if it didn't continue to reform. The point, if you have the institutional things happening, uh, you begin to get the capital flows. There are a lot of reasons and incentives to keep going. So it's not a static thing. And if they slip, uh, if they don't stay static, they'll fall below the bar because everybody else is raising their bar. So I don't, it certainly uh, helps to have the policy guidelines and the indicators out there as a start, but it's not the end of the day. So we're starting to run a little short on time. I know Professor Easterly has a special guest he'd like to um, to um, take note of and maybe allow a comment. Um, uh, I didn't realize this. I didn't see him come in, but Eskinder Nega is with us. Uh, Eskinder, do you? Want to say something? 
thank you, Professor. Uh, I have a brief comment to make. I know that the moderator had said that we shouldn't make uh, a comment, but uh, if, if please, I'm, please, I'm, do, we'll please do make a comment. <laughs> and, yeah, and I have, I think, one or two questions. Uh, my, uh, as far as my comment is concerned, I would like to thank you uh, as someone who has come from the front line uh, in the battle between democracy, uh, freedom, and tyranny. I would like to thank you for being the voice uh, of those of us who are waging the good fight. And that fight uh, uh, is the fight for democracy, Professor. Uh, and I speak not only on, uh, on my behalf or uh, those of us who are fighting for freedom in Ethiopia, but also to all the, in the name of all those who are fighting for freedom throughout the world. Thank you. Uh, you've, you've sacrificed a lot more than anyone else in this room. So thank you. I want to be congratulated. Thank you. And like you said, uh, the ideals uh, of, of freedom are not meaningless. Uh, they mean they mean as much, you know, though we are though we are poor, they mean as much as they do here. Uh, they mean as much in Africa, in poor countries, as they mean here in the rich, advanced countries. Uh, whether poor uh, and backward, or whether rich uh, and advanced, freedom has the same meaning, and that should be stressed. Uh, and having said that, uh, uh, I'd like to ask a question to all three of you. Uh, whether uh, freedom should not be considered as a national as a national security uh, 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 component in U.S. foreign policy. I mean, where where you have freedom, you don't have terrorism. Therefore, effectively promoting freedom then becomes a national security uh, asset to the U.S. And uh, uh, this is one of my questions. And the second question is, you know, uh, you know. The most successful uh, foreign aid package in world history, I think, is the Marshall is the Marshall Plan. Uh, that was, you know, that came after the Second World War, and a large component uh, in this in this foreign uh, in this foreign aid package was the promotion of democ uh, promotion of democracy and freedom. So, you know, in in light of this record, in light of this record, shouldn't you know, uh, shouldn't uh, the promotion of uh, freedom be pursued? Uh, even more in this age, when when uh, uh, when the, when when you know when there's terrorism throughout the world. Yes, I don't know if this, if this, <laughs> this question is clear. Is clear? Uh, is clear or not? I'm, uh, okay. Thank you. Yes, you answered your own question far more eloquently than I could. <laughs> I think that uh, uh, it's also a, a a wonderful reminder that at the other end of our programs are stories of individuals, courageous individuals that have visions for their country um, that are based on freedom and respect for human rights and that we as a country are fortunate enough to be able to uh, help them. And uh, we should never uh, forget about uh, that. And um, thank you for your courage and and uh, your great story. And um, again, we uh, one of the reasons behind our foreign assistance is again to to provide the sustenance by which uh, brave individuals and individuals that uh, uh, seek the betterment of their their own peoples 
Um, and we shouldn't ever forget that it's it's about uh, these personal stories. Great, thank you. And it, um, I, 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 first, I believe it should be, and I also believe it frequently is the promotion of freedom. Uh, it's not articulated in the same way in all the cases, but I mean, President Bush, forty-three, in his second inaugural address, discusses the freedom agenda as a key element of his foreign policy. If you haven't ever taken a look at it, you ought to take a look at it. But you see things in the Obama, Obama administration development policy elsewhere. I think this is, and it's sometimes expressed different ways, but the rights and the importance of the individual and preserving the freedom of the individual, I think, is an underlying point of U.S. Uh, policy and should be. Thank you. We're almost we're out of town now, except for uh, final comments from our three panelists. So, if you have any, <laughs> if you're all talked out. <laughs> Uh, I, I would rather uh, give my final remarks over to Iskander if you want to say anything more. Uh, yeah, just, just one more thought, and that's uh, something I've said over and over again whenever uh, I have the opportunity, uh, and that is, you know, those who are free have an obligation have a moral obligation, not a legal obligation, to help those of us who are not free. Uh, and and this and, and this and this should be uh, you know reflected in in uh, in the development uh, aid policies that that you have. Uh, thank you. Any from Paul or Jose? No. Just uh, I appreciate it. Uh, opportunity to come. Thanks to Harris. And thanks for your continuing work in this area, actually. I think it's important to broaden not only the, the index of economic freedom, but the other work that you're doing. And uh, this paper is much broader in scope than some of the earlier things you did, and I think that's encouraging. So, thank you. Thank you for that. And Jose? Uh, no, just thank you, Jim, and thank you to my distinguished uh, co-panelists. I thought it was a very uh, excellent discussion. I hope you all enjoyed it. Thank you. Indeed. It has been a rich and diverse conversation, and we've covered a vast amount of policy territory, which really defies a neat summing up. And so, but I would just end with two points. We look forward to proposals from the Trump administration to reform foreign aid, and we stress the importance of congressional involvement and action. So thanks. Please join me in thanking our panel. <laughs>